I'm Lisa Bryant. I'm Leanne Gibbs. And I'm Liam McNicholas. And this is the Early Education Show. A fortnightly look at the policy, politics and practice of Australia's early education sector. The COVID-19 health emergency has changed so much of our society and for the early education sector has overturned almost everything about how we operate. Over the last six weeks, we have seen an increased focus on infection control and hygiene practices. The sector nearly collapsed as enrolments dropped. Educators and teachers start to think about how to work with young children remotely. And the government implement a completely new funding model over a single weekend. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. In this episode, we're taking a step back and taking a bit of a breath. We're going to reflect on what this intense period of change has meant, uh, what stood out for us, and I guess what we've learnt, both individually and as a sector. To do this, uh, we're also really lucky to be joined by a special returning guest to the podcast, advocate, software developer, and policy expert, Carl Hessian. Carl, welcome to the podcast at a very safe social distance. <laughs> Thank you indeed, Liam. Can't be safer than being in Melbourne when you're in Canberra, that's for sure. <laughs> that's very true. Well, Lisa might agree that Melbourne's the Victoria's place to be most of the time anyway. Oh yeah. yeah. Stop making nice they announcements. Still, they still haven't. They still haven't given her a passport to get. Like there, an honorary <laughs> citizen or something? No. Um, so what we thought we might do tonight. So we're gonna, as we sort of said in the intro, there's been a lot of very specific things we've that the sectors kind of had thrown at it in the last few weeks. We've covered quite a few of them on the podcast. I hope people have appreciated the the recent episodes we put out at a bit of a increased rate. What we thought we might do tonight is, like we sort of said, just take a bit of a step back. And we've got four of us here tonight, and we're going to sort of take this as a bit of a round robin uh, style thing. We're each going to see. We're each going to sort of bring to the table, bring to the podcast one thing that stood out for us. One thing we think is one of the most important things. I wanted to, but he wouldn't let me have them. (laughs) I was a tyrannical taskmaster and I insisted everyone stick to the script, mainly because I didn't want the episode to go for two or two and a half hours, as would would threaten if the four of us talking together could easily go that long. People have time, Liam. What more have they got? I don't, Lisa. I don't. (laughs) Should we we take a bet now as to whether Lisa will divide her one thing into two things? (laughs) Yeah, one A and one B. We'll be watching out for that, Lisa. So we'll each, we're going to sort of approach it that way. What's one thing that stood out for us? What, what, what's one thing we think has been the most important thing? We're kind of leaving it that, that loose. I, mean, I think it's probably right that we probably go to our special guest first. So, Carl, what are you sort of bringing to the, to the podcast table? Well, I'll put a little bit of thought into it. It's not original. I know that you've covered a fair bit of this in the last few weeks. But I suppose the, um, the radically changed social contract that families have with services now is is just um, so different. And the, um, the way that until the 5th of April, you, you could have said that the basic, the basic contract there was that families had the right to have a child attend for their book days and they had the responsibility to pay for those days. And then the following day, families had the right for their child to attend and the responsibility to not exercise that right, to keep their, their children at, at home wherever possible for um, on public health grounds. And I, I think I'm still grappling with exactly what that means um, uh, professionally uh, in, in the sector. So I suppose that's that really is the big thing from uh, from my point of view. And that spins off in all sorts of directions with um, uh, implications for how services run, um, what's likely to change with um, maybe children picking up more days, families picking up more days again now that care is, 
is free um, and that we're in this sort of phony war period at the moment where we're all trying to feel our way forward and which way this pandemic's going to go in Australia. So that's the big thing for me. Yeah, I think it's hard to just, just overestimate how big those particular changes are like this way we've operated for such a long period of time. And look, and I know this is with the caveat as the government is hoping and I think wishing fervently this is only a very short-term thing, but so much about the way just we open our doors and operate and the way we manage waiting lists and enrolments has just kind of been overturned and it was overturned so quickly. Well, that's exactly right. And I, I think when you look back through the legislation, I know that you've lived and breathed this since, well, maybe February, March 2017, before it was even passed. A longer ago, in fact, when you go back to the Royal, uh, sorry, not the Royal Commission, <laughs> sorry, the, um, the, the um, Productivity Commission uh, inquiry into uh, the state of the sector, which um, was the genesis for the government putting forward this, this package. When you, when you look back through it all, you see that the, the market thinking is so locked into it that when this challenge of the pandemic came along, there was no mechanism in the legislation to tackle it head on. And in fact, this, the, I think the government found itself in a position where it had to it had to chuck it out. Um, I suppose it was a it was a we say that in hindsight, of course, that they had to chuck it out, but that wasn't quite how it felt. Like maybe it was going to go um, up until you know one o'clock on Thursday, the second of April. Um, who knew what the future looked like at that point in time? Um, but I guess they found themselves boxed into a corner. There was no mechanism in the in the legislation that was going to ensure that services could be, in the Prime Minister's words, put into hibernation and then pop back out of the box again down the track. Um, we were facing um, we were facing widespread wipeout. Yeah, I think we've I think because I think we I can't remember if we said this in the last podcast or but each day feels like about a week at the moment. Each week feels like a month. So this feels like the, all these changes happened months ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. And you've touched on a point there, Carl, which actually I wanted to make a whole episode, but maybe we can cover it in sort of 10, 15 minutes here. Um, and it actually came from something Lisa mentioned in a webinar you were doing with Child Australia, Lisa, which was this idea that do early education services have a social responsibility to stay open for for the community, for families during things like this? I don't know if I have... A specific answer to that. I, my question would be, what what social responsibility does the community then have to the sector, if that's happening? But don't don't you think too, Liam, that this has just highlighted um, the the challenges of having a market driven uh, early childhood sector, because we're not asking the same questions as Carl said. It can't go into hibernation. Well, schools kind of can, and not have the threat of of not continuing to mm -hmm. operate. Yeah. But early yeah. childhood education services can't. So it's kind of put it into stark relief, I think. But is the argument there that we can't go into hibernation to play devil's advocate? Because I think obviously the market model is a huge issue here and that's probably going to be underlie some of my point when we get around to mine. But would the argument be that, is that maybe we're more essential than schools? Is that one of the reasons we can't hibernate? Oh, I think it just comes back to the way in which the sector's funded and simple isn't it i mean the, the yeah, whole I, th I think that's wishful thinking liam i think it's it's just that because we're not funded as a block we can't hibernate because states were able to go rogue on the school closures they didn't have to have um the the that wasn't dictated by the federal government whereas 
services wouldn't survive if they went against that against that kind of um, you know direction. Yeah, I kind of can I kind of challenge on that point a touch there, Leanne, if I may. Um, I think the Prime Minister has made, it, has made it really clear with respect to early child education that he expects services to stay open to get the funding. There's that there's that stick in the background. If you want the cash, you've got to stay open. The schools have, have evolved a little bit differently there. And certainly in Victoria, the, the Premier played a very careful game of walking both sides of the street of saying that he was on, on side with the Prime Minister and was fully on board with the National Cabinet of saying, yes, school's got to be open, and then saying, but we're going to bring forward the school holidays. Oh, and by the way, there's a few more extra curriculum days in there to help sort of um, um, transition through in that period before the school holidays were supposed to start in Victoria. And I think that managing the personality of the Prime Minister is a big part of this. Yeah, um, and I suppose that's the difference between Victoria and New South Wales. We were that much further away from were, the yeah. holidays as well. And I think that New South Wales and, and the federal government have always had a little bit of tension in their relationship. You'd agree with that. It's a nice way to put it. <laughs> So, Carl, where do you, so this I, I like this. How you when we were chatting earlier today, you we, we sort of used this term, uh, you know, clopen or, uh, or or quantum early <laughs> yeah, childhood services yeah. that were somehow, you know, uh, closing down while or the risk of falling over while also you know needing to remain open. So there is this continual question that's being asked. You know, particularly what I've seen in social media is that there's this strange uh, gap between this advice we're receiving from state and federal governments around social distancing we're seeing you know the playground opposite my house is you know roped off and and closed indoor play centers are closed but the early education sector is continuing um how do you sort of see this playing out over the next little while we were talking about um for the organization i work for we were meeting this morning and sort of we were sort of broaching the idea that we're we're sort of falling into a bit of a status quo at the moment the government's announced the funding that's going to be announced it's not perfect by any way but it's the it, it will be enough for the majority of services to survive through the next little while, if not thrive. It's a good title there, Survive Not Thrive. Someone can have that. <laughs> um, we, so, and it seems like yeah. Australia, and look, the, the, there's always this danger that there's a hidden sort of group of, you know, cluster of cases still to come, but it seems like Australia is in some ways getting a handle on the pandemic and that we're sort of, we're, what it seems like, at least for the next, maybe if we said, if we, it feels like as a community we're operating by school terms as our unit of measurement at the moment, but it seems like for you know for the next you know few weeks, the next five, maybe five to ten weeks, this is kind of going to be the status quo where everyone who stay who can stay at home is staying at home. Services will operate at this diminished capacity with this funding. Um, where, where do you think that sort yeah. of leaves us going forward, Carl? Like, a, I, I'll, I'll, I'll talk in a couple of quick comments there. The um, I mean, this all started, of course, as a um, a it was a first and foremost. A, a pandemic. It's a public health uh, matter, and when it came into the country, there was a huge amount of concern and uncertainty around the measurement of it. And it looked, for all intents and purposes, by the 12th, 13th of March, that we were on a trajectory um, akin to what we were seeing in Europe and now the United States. And then that played out for over the next um, seven, ten days. Um, so that's the backdrop to all of this, really. That period. Um, at that time, of course, the 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 public health crisis spun out very quickly into a financial crisis in the early childhood education care space. And it took the form of people withdrawing their children, either um, not having them turn up on the day or actually withdrawing their enrolments. And because of the fragility of the sort of almost hand-to-mouth existence that um, the sector runs on, that um, 
you know, manifested as a, as a financial problem. Now, the financial problem has been stemmed for the very near term, the next three or four weeks, say, um, which is about the time frame really we can, I, I'm, I'm kind of only operating on at the moment. Um, and then we've got that, and now we've got this time to sit back and go, well, what does that actually mean from a public health point of view, which comes back to everything you're talking about, about the social distancing, message, social distancing uh, messages, messages. And that's still sitting there and has been there right the way along about um, how services really should be operating for those families who need to use them. And I think the real problem we've got now is that the, the problem has morphed from being one thing into another. We had um, a lot of children being pulled from services, so attendance was going down, which intrinsically um, means that you've naturally mitigated for a lot of the risk because a lot of the children aren't there anymore. And then as the, as the worst of the pandemic hasn't come to fruition, we kind of adapt to the new reality and we're starting to see the, you know, the attendance figures steadily move back up again. And so we move back into a space again where you create um, the opportunity possibly for the thing to get worse again. And I think that this, this oscillating um, of attendances is, is not a good thing, right? <laughs> because we, 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 need to, we need to sort out just exactly what it, what it is that, that um, is the balance between um, how many children should be in a specific space and who they should, who they should be and, and not having this, uh, oh, this is my personal opinion, not, not having this fairly open policy at the moment of you've got the right to attend, but we're really, really encouraging you not to have your children attend unnecessarily. And, and against the backdrop of um, not being clear exactly how things are going at the moment. And of course, we've seen last week with um, that service in uh, Sydney, um, Rose of Sharon, I think it was, what can happen when um, a cluster doesn't merge, you can end up with uh, you know, 25 people in the um, in that community um, infected. So I think that 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 really is the challenge at the moment is just exactly what is the balance in this policy. And um, I'd also like to see a bit more thought going into um, what the what the backstop is for services when they do actually need to close. Um, how how does that financial um, situation roll over into that and you know into that environment? There's some great points there, Carl. I mean, they seem determined not to close services. That almost seems to be the absolute last straw for them. But um, that I, I agree. I, I, I'm sort of fascinated to see how the current funding arrangements would play into there. That's it. Yeah. Well, that's a consistent thing that you'll see from the Prime Minister in Dantian with respect to independent schools as well. I mean, we and we saw this oh, a few weeks back when there was that, that media around whether the Prime Minister had called um, some representative of the Catholic Church in New South Wales and basically said, you will be open, or we will we will take your money off you. I mean, there's that there's there's something pathological about this need to be open. Yeah, absolutely. We better roll on now because we've we've obviously got three more uh, points to get to. But thanks for that, Carl. We're obviously going to hear from you over the next of our little ones as well. But um, cool. I might go I might go to you, Leanne. What what's been on your mind over this um over this period with our with our current health emergency that we've been responding to? Um, I think it's in some ways it's in line with um, the the challenge that Carl's talking about remaining open and some children not attending as well and how that has forced the services themselves to think differently about that connection between home and early childhood education and and how they continue to 
I mean, we, we've seen in the school sector, there's this um, urgency around providing children with their standard curriculum and that they should, um, you know, teachers are having to work in the space of, of this, the classroom to a very small number and also teaching to children at home. And I think this has sort of forced our sector to think, oh, should I be doing this? How can I continue this relationship with the family? Is the relationship with the family or is the relationship with the child? How can we support the family at home? And these are probably all um, questions that we should be asking ourselves. Anyway, these are the sorts of things that I think we probably should be thinking about all the time because some families, you know, don't attend early childhood education and we need to reach into homes. And some are... Um, advantaged by being in the local area and some are disadvantaged by um, being in remote areas and how do we actually communicate with families. So I think it's, it's in my, from my perspective, I can see that it's forcing that um, thinking about how we connect up with homes, where our responsibilities are. And then the next layer of this is when we're talking about connecting through technology, who has technology and who who has the adequate bandwidth and what do we do if there's a family with just one computer between, you know, five or six children who are at home, um, many of them are school, you know, school-aged who are trying to do their lessons online. So I know that's not very coherent, but I think that um, it's just opened up that conversation about the way we, we connect with homes and families. This is a safe space, Leanne, where we can bring whatever we want to this table. I'm interested because, I mean, we t- I think we, we had a really good discussion with um, some of your colleagues from the University of Wollongong, Leanne, around some of these lines. One of the lines of thought that we didn't have time to pursue there for me was, and I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, is do we think this outbreak sort of has accelerated something that was already in the offing? So given the trajectory of technology and, and how we think about the, the blurring of lines, I guess, between, um, you know, formal learning in, you know, in one building and then when children come home, the idea that that learning is, is, is different or separate. We know, was it something that the sector was going to have to grapple with at some point anyway? Was this push towards more, you know, deeper, more technologically based connections with families and has this sort of just accelerated that process? Or do you think it's really sort of come screaming out of nowhere for, for the sector? Oh, I don't. I think in some states that's not the case because they already have children who are at quite remote locations. And I think um, Queensland, for example, has a very well formed up uh, approach to delivering at a distance. And I think they're ahead of ahead of the game right now in some of the ways that they are delivering to families. I think maybe it's an area that some people have had their heads in for a long time and some are just moving their, their thinking into it now but what a, what a great opportunity because there are families that we don't reach there are families that you know engage intermittently with early childhood education and how how is that connection still happening when they're not on site um, and what what is What's actually happening in that connection as well? We don't have a curriculum. We have an early years learning framework and how are we using that? Um, and as Lisa was saying, you know, some of that connection um, is just about the relationship. You're just there and, and you're making that connection. But what are our obligations to continue to deliver um, the outcomes of the early years learning framework? Uh, and, you know, where, where government is paying for these um, places in early childhood education, what's our obligation to continue to do that? Oh, it's like a whole episode topic there, Leanne. 
Well, I think that is because I think that this is where, you know, I don't want to put um, sort of too many thoughts in people's heads, but we're, how are we delivering on the bang for the buck? Are we using this time where uh, we're upskilling staff and and um, creating more opportunities for quality when, when things go back to, to being, po- you know, post-COVID? Are we delivering to children at home? How are we meeting those obligations? And I think I think it is a really... You know, it's an important question um, because it also goes to the very heart of what early childhood education is for, and also it's it's an important it is a very important um, element of children's lives. And ha- if we're sort of saying, well, for now we're just going to forget it, well, that's really it's not good enough, is it? Yeah, I agree. I think that. It's been a really interesting. So I, I'd probably be one of those ones uh, who this has come out a bit out of the blue for me. So I probably had a very uh, old school view on what early education is, and, it, and that it is in this kind of physical space where we're engaged with children. And my and this is probably maybe this is a you know a factor of me having not actually been a teacher in, in front of children for quite a while and being a boring person stuck in an office um, when I'm not on Skype with you lovely people, but um, you know I probably have had that that old mindset of that's what. You know that's where we that the the engagement our work with children is so much about in the first five years is about our um, our interactions and our relationship building with them and I hadn't and I probably rebelled against the idea that we should bring technology technology into that um, into that space as much as possible but you're absolutely right if we look at you know what the early years learning framework is asking us to do and I think. You know, what's, what's fascinated me is I think I've seen a little bit of stuff which is around, well, you know, it's kind of easier for schools to do this stuff because they have a curriculum, whereas I actually think it's the other way around. I think when you have this set curriculum, it makes it harder to to fit, you know, a, a curriculum that's been developed where children are in that space, whereas you're right, Leanne, we have a framework, you know, and that those learning outcomes, I think I, I spoke a bit about this in that episode um, a couple of episodes back, but our framework is so open to interpretation and open to the complexity of children's lived experiences and their lives with their families that, you know, what, what having a strong sense of identity means during this time, I think is much easier to, to transfer into new ways of teaching and learning than, you know, a pretty hard and fast curriculum. Yeah, I agree, Liam, but I think it's something that we've got to think hard about, right? It's, it's, Maybe it is, and we're we're not working to uh, race through a curriculum, for example, and and say, okay, ch- children have to be at this particular level. We're very fortunate in that sense. But strong sense of identity, is, think, tick. Yeah, well, it's, this is where our creativity comes in, and our our um, you know, really really thinking about what it means to be an early childhood education educator and what what that means for children. Isn't there also, Leanne, some sort of it's in our own best interest to to be engaging with children now mm. because if we don't, we're going to have a, a shit rest of the year dealing with traumatised children. Yes, 100%, because that's the continuity of the, the relationship, isn't it? And it's also our role as advocates and early childhood professionals. Yes, definitely. I agree. We're all in furious agreement. <laughs> what? <laughs> What's, what has this COVID world done to us? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, it might be your turn then, Lisa. Thanks so much for those. There's some fascinating points there, Leanne. Again, I've, I'm, I'm now regretting this idea of a topic because I want to I want to talk for an hour on each of the things everyone's raised. No, because there's so many there's so many layers to this. Aren't I know. There? We we can and probably come back and return to some of these. I think. But um, Lisa, what's been most on your mind 
during this time? Look, I, of course, wanted to have two, and Liam wouldn't let me. So the one I've chosen to talk about is the fear of people in the sector. Um, And this has, at some stages over the last few weeks, infuriated me because it... um, I think sometimes it comes out in misplaced ways and other times it's made me feel very compassionate for some people. Um, but it just, many years ago, and I was talking to an educator online last night who kind of let me frame up these ideas a bit more with us. So thank you, Siobhan. But um, many years ago when I was very new in the sector, this um, conversation started happening online about toilet rolls and I just kind of didn't get it. I couldn't think why you couldn't use toilet rolls um, for doing craft and why it was such a big issue. And as people started talking about toilet rolls, I realised that this was an issue that some people felt very passionate about and they were terrified of catching disease and they were giving all sorts of evidence as to why you could catch disease from using toilet rolls, none of which was actually accurate because the amount of time that a bacteria or a virus can live on cardboard is nothing like what people were thinking. Um, But there was just a lot of fear about them. And I think the same sort of mentality has come up here in many different ways. So there's obviously the fear that everyone has of catching the virus or of being a vector of the virus to, you know, particularly family members. Um, But there's also the fear that I will have no income that my business will go bankrupt, that, you know, um, that my service will not be able to survive this, that I won't be able to use technology to connect with my families, that the technology will be hacked, that someone last night said to me, I'm really scared because we don't control what happens in people's homes so what you know what like if we use zoom then what we don't control what happens in people's homes and I said to her what are you scared of and I still don't quite know what it was that she was scared of but there's a lot of boogie bands out there for a lot of boogie people out there for a lot of people and I think that across the whole world everyone's scared you know it's new shit we've never had this before so of course we're all scared but I sense that a lot of people in the education and care sector are more scared than most and so I had to then say well why are they so scared what is it you know and I realized that it's what happens when you have a workforce that is has a lot of people who are underpaid and undervalued in their working lives and that then I'm not quite sure how to say this but um, if you don't feel okay about yourself because you're not valued in what you're doing then it's very easy to then become scared you know because you're at the bottom of the heap 
and the bottom of the heap is always the scariest place. And I think it kind of extends to um, I don't, I don't understand what I'm being told. I mistrust information that I'm being told. So when I'm told that my service will be okay financially, I mistrust it. And why do I mistrust it? Because, you know, like governments have lied to us in the past, you know. Yeah. Does any of that make sense? I'm not sure if it's if I've presented what I'm feeling as coherently as you know, as what I need to for people to understand. So I suppose what I'm saying is there is way too much fear in the sector. We don't have to, you know, we're being assured that it is safe for us to be at our services. You have to take that with a bit of, you know, a a grain of salt because I don't think it necessarily is. We've been assured that our services will survive. I think we can we can take that one on. Um, we, we've been assured that, you know, we're getting reasonable information from government. Yeah, I think we've got to take that one on. We've got to, we've been assured that Zoom is in fact safe to use in our services. I think, yeah, we have to take that on. So I think that a lot of the things that people are currently scared of their um uh yeah they're they're not things that we need to be scared of and i don't know how to assure people you know how to stop people feeling fear because fear is such an elemental emotion but you know i'd like to try Yeah, I think there's some really good points there. We should point out, you know, Lisa, I know you've been doing a lot of uh, what we call a pro bono work on social media. Um, you know, probably what we would say is even sort of uh, translating a lot of the government's communication, which I think probably a lot of the things we've been talking about is the government's response, while not perfect, has been probably as good, if not maybe even slightly better than we would have expected. Maybe not as fast as we would have expected, but that's you know it's very very difficult to respond to these things quickly but their communication has at times not been fantastic and you also did a great um i'm not saying i said great before i was about to point out not because i'm in it but um you know a great video with a bunch of people in the sector sort of trying to allay some of those fears so i think we can say you've done a lot of work um in that space yeah it is it's 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 fascinating isn't it because i mean on one on one measure, I wonder whether it's sort of confirmation bias. We're all in the sector, so we most of the people we know are in the sector, so the reaction feels worse than other sectors. I wonder if there are other businesses or sectors that are going through similar stuff. The other thing I think about is I wonder if this is another um, another example of the market model just making this really difficult where people are leaping to a particular sense of panic because it's not just about whether their service to the to children and families can continue, but they, they, there's this direct connection to a lot of people. We know that, I think I'm right here, Lisa, isn't it? But that about 80% of the so the sector is sort of standalones, you know, one person running their own centre. That's right. And there's this, yeah. so rather than the reaction being about, gee, the early education sector is in trouble, it's, and I, 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 I say, I, there's no judgment here, but it probably sounds, Jim, we've done 122 episodes where I've, you know, probably not been the biggest fan of for-profit provision, but that's, you know, people are directly connecting this to their livelihoods and their, their, how they have lived their lives in terms of running these centres. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, that, um, yes, it is like a lot of people have invested a lot of themselves in this, but I think, and I think that maybe is the answer for people who own centres or who manage very small centres, but for educators it's that's not a, a thing and yet there is still this terror around and I think yeah I, I, I don't know <laughs> yeah I was gonna make a comment I, I I was listening very intently Lisa and I agree exactly what you're saying there I think one of the things for me is normally when there is a, a crisis that comes along you can normally identify or ordinarily identify several people who are able to help give some perspective and who are able to say, look, this last time this happened, we did this. And they can kind of help provide a bit of confidence that there is going to be a pathway through whatever the problem is, you know? This thing is so widespread and um, not only do we not have like um, a biological immunity to this, we don't have a cultural immunity to understanding how this kind of stuff works. And all we see is the, um, the situation overseas which is very, very real and very relatable. And then you look at numbers in Australia and you start to think, crikey, that could be us. And I think what we don't really have a lot of, a big supply of, are people who are able to impart uh, a kind of a confidence that we are going to get through this in some form. And the challenge there is that um, I think in many organisations, but let's talk specifically about um, in early childhood education, um, you know, just the staff might ordinarily, or, educators might ordinarily look to a team leader or look to the a manager or so forth, possibly even a board under some circumstances, um, somebody who is able to help give some reassurance. And I don't know that anyone particularly feels much reassurance at this point. And I, I, yeah, I, I, I think you're right. And, and I've seen educators say that. They say, yeah, our service isn't, isn't telling us what's happening. And I'm thinking, Jesus, they probably don't know yet. Well, and was there some part of this where um, there was no recognition of what was happening for early childhood education? There was no recognition of the educators. Do you think that kind of allowed the, the fear to compound a little bit? Oh, yeah, for sure. And it wasn't just educators, it was teachers. And, mm. you know, and I think our Prime Minister kept saying there is no risk to children. And I think one of the first articles I wrote anywhere was about, yeah, but what about the teachers and the educators? And mm. could you at least say thank you yeah. if you're going to put them on the chopping? Yeah, there was right. there was almost like an invisibility there. And so that, that probably made people feel even more worried and concerned. Yeah. But I just, I do think it's sad and one of the, you know, one of the other things that I think is, is sad is, and Liam, you spoke about, sorry, I'm, I'm coming at this weirdly, but you spoke about my role in translating some of the information. I have but two skills in life. I'm a speed reader and I can interpret, you know, complex information quickly in a way that makes sense to people. So that's why... This has, you know, I've been able to work in this space because of those two skills. But I've also noticed that many educators can read something that's quite straightforward and not take meaning from it. So I think that we have a high degree of, and educators aren't the only people that are doing that. I think we've got a high degree of functional literacy in Australia. And it comes, you notice it when something like this happens. 
and I think you notice it in the sector when something like this happens, is that people are reading things and misinterpreting what they're reading, whether it be on social media or, you know, in, in a prime ministerial announcement, so that they're not, they're not getting accurate information. Yeah, I'd agree with you there, Lisa. And um, I think it's notable there in the last week since April 2nd that the um, that DESE, to my view, has really made an effort to up their game with the way that they're communicating. And they don't get everything right when they first put out necessarily an update to the FAQ or whatever, but they it's clear that they are listening and then updating that FAQ to try and make it as comprehensible as, as possible. I think they're making I think they're trying. And I think what's yeah, happened but, but hang on. I spoke just before we recorded this. They as we're recording this, the department has um, released a new webinar that was not a live session. It was a pre recorded one. And at the end of it I said Carl, I've got no idea whether I've always been wrong or whether they've actually said the wrong thing in this, but this isn't how I understand the package. So if we're doing things like that, no matter how much they're trying, they're still not managing it. Yeah, and just well, the volume of stuff as well that's come through, I can't keep up with it. Like I, I just cannot keep up with the, the – the, I mean, the way that you, you guys have stayed on top of information, I'm struggling I'll do it. Well, yeah. the, the second comment I was going to make there, Lisa, was just You're that. You're not alone, Leanne. <laughs> not, not at all. Not at all. Um, is, is that this has been a pandemic of two halves for the DESE so far, because the first half we were um, uh, uh, confronted with the thinking, which is all around the additional absences, if you can remember that. You know, and that's that's all absolutely gone by the wayside. It's been completely scrapped and replaced with this 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 new thing. And I think that um, having the having the evolving plan, the way that it's come about, doesn't that doesn't help make things clearer for anybody. You know, especially when we've still had yeah, we were working through all of that. Yeah, but yeah. And, and, as, and as to that, as to the um the webcast, I haven't yet had the pleasure to watch that. Um, yeah. So I can. Can I, I can... can I just ask something, Carl? I'm fascinated. You keep referring to dates, like. In my mind, it's we're still in February. Have we gone past February? <laughs> I have got absolutely no understanding of what happened when. It's just been like each day you get up, you absorb more information, you write stuff, you, you know, you say stuff, you do stuff. But I have got absolutely like it's. I couldn't tell you when the pandemic started. I couldn't tell you when we got. Yeah, when any of this happened, it's just been a massive time to me. Well, this has been look. I'm with you there. I hear you there. Um, the only way I can kind kind of try and keep some some touch on reality is to sort of file it all in some kind of meaningful way because it's it's just too much. Like you sit you sit here, we sit here today and look back on it all. And I actually thought it was only four weeks ago that I started looking at this closely, but but it's actually five weeks ago. And you think, you know, I've I've aged in the last five weeks, <laughs> big time, <laughs> big time. And I haven't slept as little since um, <laughs> since we did the programming for the CCSS system uh, back in um, 2017, 2018. Oh, can we just say, um, sorry, Lim, I know you haven't had your go yet, but can I just say I'm very sorry that your profession was wiped out by by <laughs> the package that rescued the early education and care sector? Well, that's that's very kind of you, and I'll take that in the spirit that it's intended, Lisa. <laughs> but I, 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 I would not be the... Um, I wouldn't be 
mourning the passing of anything if it meant free early child education and care. <laughs> Look, I think it, if anything, this is just going to create it creates a bit more bit more bit more work. That's for sure. But um, that's absolutely for sure. But uh, you know what? I got that I got that bad feeling that you know the the government haven't finished with with the system. You know, they'll be. I suspect coming back and doing something. Trying with to turn it yeah. back on. Yeah, yeah. CCS two. This time it's personal. Sworn <laughs> <laughs> off. Lisa, I was I was listening to that just saying, look, Lisa, God, it's worse than worrying about the sector stuff. With two school aged children in the house, we wake up most mornings not knowing a whether it's a weekday or whether it's school holidays or not. Because <laughs> it just it's it's fairly similar to the last two weeks of the school term, which was just children at home, me trying to work, and you know, barely controlled <laughs> chaos. <laughs> and a lot of bluey. Have your children taken to the and and Carl? Have yours taken to the nature of being at home? Like, are they naturally sort of enjoying the home environment, or are they tearing uh, their hair out and wanting to be outside? Uh, it, it's peaks and troughs. I think they they're probably better than we thought. Um, I think there's this period where they got we're really off topic now. This is now just a therapy session for Carl and myself. But hey, I, I'm taking advantage of it. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> interesting that's all yeah i think there was this initial period where it was all so strange and new that it was exciting and then it kind of sunk in they're stuck with the two of us for god knows how long and i think we've settled into some sort of routine where it's just this is life now and you know and there'll be some there'll be some tv if we just get some stuff done that's basically that we're living sort of day to day at this point i um one quick comment then, uh, Leanne. Uh, I wandered past my nine-year-old the other day and she had two iPads. And on one iPad, she was playing a game and holding... Uh, the other iPad, she was holding above the game and she was she was zooming, <laughs> zooming a friend and her and the friend were navigating how they were going to do the game. And I've, I've watched that for... I've watched that for, you know, for 20 seconds. I thought it was quite fascinating and then just you know, left it to it. <laughs> so I think my, 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 my parenting has... Um, come down a notch i've got to say uh, yeah. but that's, that's the original putting a book inside a book and reading yeah, it, it is, isn't it, it? Is. i love that it is, it is. i'm excited i mean i finally got to catch up with frozen 2 so i'm pretty excited so now i've got oh, that man. now i've got the soundtrack anyway, in my head liam uh, i shouldn't have interrupted what's your what's your thing yeah, it was all your fault lisa for getting us down that tunnel hole. we'll go through yeah. mine pretty quickly because i think mine kind of touches on most if not all of what's been said before i don't think we need to spend too much time on it but my big takeaway from this and maybe this is a bit of a bias because my day job is working operationally in a in a um obviously in an early childhood organization my wife turned to me the other day probably when we were in the midst of trying to homeschool children and do a video call and and make lunch or something um and she just said you know when's it going to get quiet for you because it had been the last two weeks have been uh, the last two to three weeks if not longer see i've i have the concept of time is now i think of the past that's pre covid we don't we don't work with concepts of time anymore um have been really just busy just responding to things on a day to day basis exactly what you were talking about leanne about you know staying on top of things and and, and particularly and keeping uh, educators and families as notified as possible so it was interesting reading online all these people sort of talking about oh you know we're, you know we're working from home but there's not much to do and um, I don't think I've ever been busier in my time in early education particularly in a management role Um, so my bias with this is that what I think my takeaway is that uh, is that what we hope or what I what I strongly suspect is that uh, the government from the minister down to and now I think finally bureaucrats in the Department of Education are looking at this system they've had a huge hand in creating the childcare subsidy system 
and are probably looking at it with slight headaches now going, why on earth did we design something so complex and why didn't we use the opportunity to make something a lot simpler? Because it's interesting. I think it feeds into what you were talking about, Lisa. One of the other reasons I think people are worried, if not afraid, is that this stuff is so complex. You know, I'm kind of paid to do this on a day-to-day basis is trying to manage it and report up to my, you know, CEO and and work with my colleagues. And it's that that's difficult enough with, you know, a, a good team of colleagues who are much smarter than me than I work with. But it shouldn't have been this hard to sort of develop a, a package for the sector that could keep it afloat. And the fact it was so hard and the fact it was misinterpreted and the fact that they're still going to have to have a huge amount of special circumstances stuff around it just means that the sector as it's currently set up, even if you disagree or agree with a market-based model or for-profit versus not-for-profit, the, the the structural framework of the sector is just too massively complex. And even though I think we are hearing everything from them saying we just want to switch the old system back on, there has to be some part of them going, we can't be in this position again. And if that means we need to simplify things even further or look at some other model, then this is probably the closest we're going to get to it, right? Is this... What we have we finally achieved the unscrambling the egg that Catalyst wanted us to unscramble all that time ago? Well, if we keep with the same, if we keep with the same, uh, this the the same metaphor, I think maybe all we've got. I think that that might, even for an optimist like me, Leanne, as you know, that maybe that may be too far. But I think they may acknowledge that there is a wobbly plate of scrambled eggs in front of them, and they're going to have to do something about them. I think I, I think they thought they had a you know beautiful avocado on sourdough or something before, and I think they know it's now some. <laughs> pretty old cold scrambled eggs uh, dear. so that's really my big thinking and look and again that's probably a bias because i'd have to you know manage this thing and then sort of be the conduit between the department and 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 families and educators and saying that again i think we do need to say this occasionally being fairly happy with the response from the government would it have been great if it was quicker it might have been great if they hadn't let quite so much of the sector fall over it might have been great if they hadn't wasted two weeks worrying about additional absences like that was the biggest issue facing the sector but like i hope you realize that they worried about that till the day that my article came out pointing out that they shouldn't worry about that (laughs) are you drawing a direct connection there lisa (laughs) Thank, thank you, Lisa. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know who to thank for that. <laughs> I think yeah, but that's, that's right, Liam. The, the, the broad elements of this, which were what was clearly necessary, was to dump cash into services, um, directly inject it some way, was just not really. It's never in, this, this was never envisaged to need to take place on a, such a universal scale across all services, service types, you know. And I think what's fascinating for me from this point of view is the, crea- the creativity that the department has brought to bear to find some um, chink in the armour in the legislation to be able to ram the direction through. I'm assuming that there was a direction from up high um, just to get the cash out the door. And the path that they they struck upon, which is one small comment and I'll be done, I suppose, um, was to um, recognise that the legislation did provide for a circumstance where you know, a service may not be able to lodge session reports because of a local outage, whatever the case may be. Um, And so then they took the very interesting bureaucratic creative step of saying, well, if we turn off the ability to submit session reports, we can trigger those provisions because now by definition, the provider can't send in the reports. And that's, that's actually incredibly creative. It's, it's not what anybody would have thought that that section of the legislation would be being used for, I'm sure some weeks ago, 
but it's an incredibly creative thing to do. Um, and That's why <laughs> lawyers get the big bucks. <laughs> well, someone, someone, someone um, has uh, earned their KPI there, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think um, I don't think we need to touch too much more on that, but that would be my you know greatest hope. If the one positive thing to come out of this might be. A, some people noticing, hey, how great was free early education and care? Or at least, gee, that system was too ridiculous and can we please have a have a different one? You know what worries me about that, Liam, and I think it's really important to note that people don't think they're getting free early education and care. Family. They think they're getting free childcare. Yes, yeah. That's, a, that's going to be a whole other uh, episode, I think, for us as well, Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, so quickly behind the scenes. So when we when I set up this 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 what I think we know was a was a pretty good plan, and I, you know some members of the podcast took it seriously, some didn't. Was to just bring one thing to the table, and we'll talk about that for you know about an hour or so. There were some members of the podcast who will remain nameless who found it very difficult to stick to what I thought was a pretty clear and simple rule and desperately tried to have... always Lisa. I know. Because she always wants two things. It's never me. I feel like she was aided and abetted uh, by hang someone. Hang on, hang on. Once I said I wanted two, you said I want two too. <laughs> well, you're a, you know, you're... I'm a leader. I'm a leader. <laughs> That's right. Well, you got departments listening to you. Like, but what I did, so I've, I, as the benevolent, you know, producer of the podcast that I am, I've been very kind, I think. And what we've said is we've, we've sort of brought one big thing to talk about each. I want to do a really quick lightning round and we're really going to keep people to, you know, sort of one to two minutes here. It's just sort of one extra thing that's occurred to us. If we could have listed two things, um, what, what, what's the second thing we would have listed? And, and it's very possible we may pick these up for a later episode because I think there'll be a few interesting things to come out of it. So we might go back to my special guest, Carl, first. So what do you want to quickly chuck into the lightning round? Um, the, the two and a half days notice that the system was going to be turned off was really <laughs> short. And then the follow-up notice, the, the fo- when I say, sorry, when I, I'm speaking loosely. When I say the system turned off, I mean the ability can to we, Can we just remember, I'm sorry, I know I'm, I'm now increasing your time, which is my fault. How it was, was it about two and a half years right. from the first inkling of the Jobs for Families package to it actually being legislated and enforced? It was it about, is that what we're saying? Well, actually, I checked, um, I checked that today, actually. The legislation received royal assent on the 4th of April, 2017. And so on the 2nd of April, 2017, not quite three years later, um, that, that part of it had been, um, had been killed, killed, or temporarily at least. Um, and so we're, we're talking about, what, 18 months down the track from going live in July 2018? Yeah. Um, to not, not, even, not even that. It's... Uh, no, a bit over that, 21 months. That's, you know, not long. Um, I'll be quick though, Liam, because I know that you've got to wrap up fast. The um, uh, Putting my serious face on, the uh, the changes that are uh, uh, required for, for me specifically as a software provider, uh, albeit a small one, um, to make sure that um, services can meet their, their legislative requirements to issue statements of entitlement is no small thing on the back of this. Um, because sessions aren't being reported anymore, we're not drawing down the session subsidy statement information. And um, that's, a, that's, a, that's something that I never, ever envisaged would change at such short notice and would have to be uh, compensated for. Now, I don't know how others uh, are going with their changes, but for me, um, that was a, it, it is actually a very significant thing. And I think the, um, uh, the reprogramming effort that's going into that is um, 
uh, is significant, should I say. Wonderful. Thanks, Carl. We should say a big, big hats off to, to you and uh, your colleagues in being, I think, at the blunt end of that uh of that, of that, of that change of having to. The, yeah. <laughs> very, All right, Leanne, what's uh, what are you chucking into the lightning round? Okay, I'll be quick. Um, what I think is that I, I've noticed that everyone is now a mathematician because how often do you check the data of the um, the COVID stats and have a look at those and have a conversation about them? The second is that we're all now scientists. We're all disease and transmission experts, I think, um, in terms of how it's spreading, what we should do, social distancing, all of those things, and communicating. So we've got messaging experts, and some are better at this than others. And my thinking is that if we can uh, make sure that we have great early childhood education and everything um, is, you know, these are the sorts of things that we know we're talking about in high-quality early early childhood education, then we'll be able to manage a crisis in the future. Oh, you're always managing to advocate for early education, even in a very quick lightning round. I like it, Leanne. All right, Lisa, what have you got for us? Look, I've just got um, something that's not really sector-based, but it's um, uh, it's maybe some advice to people in the sector. One of the things that's gotten me through this is having a group of um, four people, including myself, who I banter with every day online, day in, day out, nighttime, daytime, whatever time. So to the three of you, thank you for being there at the end of my pen whenever I needed to complain, ask questions, say, Carl, what does that mean? Say, or, you know, say help I'm finding this hard you guys have been there so I think that everyone in the early um, education and care sector needs a group to banter with oh that's a lovely point Lisa so nice nice, isn't it Liam maybe I'm just feeling compassionate because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we might all die but no (laughs) I get it but hold that thought and order online for our fabulous Christmas presents (laughs) I think she just wants two things and the next time we do this kind of podcast she's just she's annoyed that I didn't let her have two things. Yeah, yeah, She's yeah. She's playing the long game. She's no, the not game. at all. Like, I don't think, yeah, like, we always communicate a bit between us because, you know, we're all in different cities, et cetera. But um, having that relationship before the pandemic has certainly made it easier, you know, to get through the pandemic because we know each other so well through the written word and I'm finding it's hard to communicate with some friends that I normally meet face to face through the written word because I don't know what their writing means whereas I can spot you know Liam's sarcasm a mile off. <laughs> That's because almost everything is sarcastic in that thread Lisa. <laughs> oh well I feel bad bringing mine up now because I think that would have been a lovely point to end on but um the last point I want to try and tease and I'm going to chuck this in the lightning round but it is I think it's a very difficult thing to articulate is what I've noticed part of the, uh, one of the big parts of my job over the last month or so has been uh, shaping and sending out communications with families and then responding to families about particular things. So this has been, you know, when the new funding announcement was made, when we've made changes to the operations of our services. So this week we moved to a shorter um, number of hours were open during the day and, inc- and implemented a range of new um 
what I'm sure for families are quite frustrating changes to how children are dropped off and all those different kinds of things, primarily with the aim of protecting educators. Um, so the way we've approached this is we kind of have a, a more secure financial footing. We now want to move to that that question and that piece around how we're making sure educators are safe. What I've noticed during this time is our communication with families is really interesting. The overwhelming majority of families have been really supportive and have been writing um you know, back to us saying, you know, we, we, you know, this is difficult, but we completely understand it. Is there anything we can do to support? We have a lot of families who are remaining enrolled, but you know, staying at home, which decreases the number of people we have coming through our centres. But there's also been a number of families who, um, who, you know, have responded in in a, in a different way, and 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 where I, you know, would often grumble and be cranky about it. I, I understand where people are coming from. This is a really difficult time for everyone, but there's a tension that's been highlighted for me, which I've thought and 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 engaged with for a long period of time and I think this crisis has highlighted it which is um, there's a tension in how families view us so where families have been particularly cranky I think it's because for them how they viewed our service has suddenly shifted so I think they just saw it as we're paying you the money we expect you to be open from as long as I want and and I need this thing to happen they haven't viewed it as something as a as a community where children and educators and families come together so when we start taking things away or we start reducing things the response and talking talking families through particular things has just been really interesting i think it's highlighted the tension which i think you were um, i think well, i think we've all sort of touched on before which is this idea of you know the, the headlines are free childcare, but what does that mean so we're, we're coming at it from this perspective where we're, we're providing early education to children in a context where we're working with educators in a confined you know space where we want to protect educators and children but if families are you know, paying money and expecting a service. That's and, and they're really just seeing it as babysitting for them during the day while they're at work. That's a real tension that's been highlighted by this um, change in you know, are we in, are we in essential service? If so, are we in essential service because we're educating children or because so families can then go to work? I think that I don't have an answer for this tension yet, but it's something that's really occurred to me, and it's been really the kind of forefront of my mind as my work has been mostly around talking with families about this situation. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Long rambling frankly. sentence completed. No, no, no. I, I get that, you know, and I think that it's interesting whether parents will still feel the right to be quite as demanding when the product they thought they were buying is being provided for free. Mm. Yeah. It's fascinating. Anyway, that's going to be a whole other episode, but mm. um, we should wrap up just before we hit the one hour mark. I want to thank everyone, obviously, but particularly Carl for, for hopping on and, and joining us for this chat. Yeah, thanks, Carl. I feel also, too, we were a bit better behaved with you on board, so I'm just wondering <laughs> whether you have a moderating effect upon it. Gosh. Um, I, hope I don't know. I don't know if that's true, Leanne. I've got quite a few edit points. I've got. I've got here. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you have been listening to the Early Education Show. You can find show notes and links for this episode and all our other episodes at earlyeducationshow.com. The show is hosted by Lisa Bryant, Leanne Gibbs, and Liam McNicholas, and produced by Liam McNicholas. The music is by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show in the Apple Podcast Store. It really helps others find the show. Get in touch with us at Early Edu Show on Facebook and Twitter, or send us an email at earlyedushow at gmail.com. See you next time.